Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we take our first trip to the American South, to the land that the Cherokees called the Blue Wall, the abrupt southern end of the Blue Ridge Mountains. We cross rivers and see some of the highest waterfalls in the eastern United States and go up and down 14,000 feet over several days of hiking on a 77-mile journey through the forests and ridges of the Appalachian foothills. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Foothills Trail in upstate South Carolina and western North Carolina. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you for joining me. In July 2020, in the heart of the pandemic, I came up with the idea to start this podcast. The goal was to bring together both a sense of place, the geography, the history, and the stories of an area and a trail, and a practical look at the trail itself through the experience of someone who's hiked it. This episode is being published in July 2021, a year later. So happy first anniversary to Trails Worth Hiking. Because it's the first anniversary of the show, it seemed like a good moment to take stock of where we've been and where things are headed. This is the 16th episode. I've published at least one episode about a new trail in every calendar month since the show started, plus a few bonus episodes. We've explored trails in Europe, South America, Asia, and North America so far. Australia and Africa are coming in future episodes. In the United States, we've covered trails in my home state of California, but also Nevada and Oregon in the West plus Minnesota, and now with this episode, the Carolinas. If I haven't gotten to your region, I will. You can help me get there by letting me know about great hikes near where you live or or other places you've hiked. True to my initial goal, I've covered both backpacking trips, where you need to pitch a tent or tarp, as well as treks where you can stay in huts, hostels, inns, or guest houses. I've really appreciated the emails I've received from listeners suggesting treks or regions to cover on the show. Please keep the suggestions coming. One of the reasons I started the show was to connect with others who are as enthusiastic as I am about hiking trails in all corners of the globe, and so far that has been one of the most rewarding things about the show. I've been overwhelmed, really, to see the the broad reach of the show. We've had listeners in more than 60 countries. And I'm happy to see that with each episode, more people seem to find the show. I'm not someone who uses social media, but it's been great that people have been finding the show without me putting a lot of time into that. But please don't be shy to reach out to me by email at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So I just want to say thanks to all of those of you who have been listening including even if this is the first episode you've listened to. And if you are new, you might enjoy going back and listening to prior episodes. Each is designed to be a self-contained experience covering a, a different trail, and you don't have to listen to them in any particular order. In the coming year, I plan to continue to cover trails 
in parts of the world we haven't gone to yet on the show. And that includes new parts of the United States for the show and even corners of California that we haven't covered yet here in my home state. I do have some additional bonus episodes planned as well. So I hope you'll continue to join me for the ride and I look forward to the coming year. All right, let's get to this month's episode. Our guest on this episode is Nancy East of the blog Hope and Feather Travels. Hope and Feather Travels has a variety of posts about the outdoors with a focus on the American South, but also posts on a lot of other more general outdoor related topics. Nancy has hiked the Foothills Trail twice, once in sections with her kids several years ago, and then again more recently over a three-day weekend. Yep, she hiked 77 miles in three days. Nancy is impressive for a lot of reasons. Together with a friend, she set a record for the fastest time hiking every trail in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. She and a friend hiked all 950 miles of the trails in 29 days, averaging more than 30 miles per day. And she's hiked every trail multiple times. I think she's actually closing in on completing four complete hikes of every trail in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. She is a mom and a retired veterinarian. She is also a search and rescue volunteer for her county search and rescue team and a hiking guide in the Smoky Mountains. So I think you will enjoy hearing from Nancy about all of these things and, of course, about the Foothills Trail. Let's talk for a minute about why I am profiling this trail. So as you know, I often profile a trail that I've hiked or a trail in an area that I've hiked, even if I haven't through hiked the trail that's there or in an area I have some other personal connection to. I don't have that connection to the Foothills Trail. It's really the opposite that brought me to this trail. I have never hiked in the American South. By definition, that means I want to hike there. So in thinking about the region, I researched what might be a hike I could do someday. I looked for a trail of a length I could do in a week or two, and that seemed to be worth the effort. And in doing that research, the Foothills Trail jumped out as a hike worth doing that fits that bill. So where is the Foothills Trail hike? Which foothills is the name referencing? The hike is primarily in South Carolina. It touches on North Carolina a little bit. In the foothills of the Southern Blue Ridge Escarpment. That's the edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains. The line at which the Blue Ridge Mountains plunge toward the rolling foothills of upstate South Carolina. But let's back up for a moment and talk about the Blue Ridge Mountains. What are the Blue Ridge Mountains? These are the mountains that John Denver called almost heaven. Uh, Thomas Jefferson once said about them, It is impossible for the emotions arising from the sublime to be felt beyond what they are here. The rapture of the spectator is really indescribable. The Blue Ridge Mountains are part of the Appalachian Range. They are likely a billion years old. Yep, that's billion with a B. One of the oldest mountain ranges on Earth. They were originally created by uplift from plate tectonics, and they were much higher at one time than they are today. But as you can imagine, they have been weathered by erosion over time. Though even today, they contain the highest peaks east of the Rockies in the United States. 
the Blue Ridge Mountains cross eight states and at their southern terminus widened to about 70 miles wide, which is where the Blue Ridge escarpment is. The blue look they can have sometimes that give them their name comes from hydrocarbons released by the forest. So it is really the the trees of the Blue Ridge Mountains and the forest of the Blue Ridge Mountains that make them sometimes have a blue, hazy appearance. So that's the Blue Ridge Mountains, but then that brings us to the southern edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains and the southern Blue Ridge Escarpment. This is the section that has been called the Blue Wall by the Cherokee. It's really just an abrupt end to the Blue Ridge Mountains. It drops 2,000 feet in less than half a mile. It's a hazy ridge of gorges, cliffs, and mountains. It has more than 50 waterfalls, which is the largest concentration of waterfalls in the eastern United States. Several have drop-offs of more than 300 feet, or nearly 100 meters. Humans settled the region way back. The Cherokee inhabited it before European settlers. The first European settlers came in the 18th century with English settlements at Lake Jocassi and Lake Kiowi. After the Cherokee War of 1776, the Cherokee were displaced and the area became part of South Carolina. By the mid-19th century, there was farming and timber operations. Things began to change substantially, though, in the 1960s when hydroelectric projects were undertaken. But that also brought a response with conservation efforts. I want to talk about one person who really personifies persistence in this effort, and that's C. Thomas Wyke, or possibly Weich, not sure on the pronunciation. He spent nearly every weekend hiking, canoeing, and photographing the region, and in 1972 established the Natural Land Trust, which had a goal of preserving the Blue Wall region. He started with a letter-writing campaign, but the water and power companies that owned a lot of the the area for these hydroelectric projects uh, weren't that responsive, and he didn't make any headway with those big landowners. But over the next 15 years, he met often with a lot of smaller private landowners, eventually convincing many of them to donate land to the state of South Carolina to protect it. He eventually convinced the Water Commission to study the watersheds. And in 1993, uh, his efforts paid off in a conservation easement through the larger landholder properties. He was still worried, though, about preserving land that was owned by a power company. He then went about publishing two books of the photographs he had taken to the area. And these books brought a lot of attention to what was at stake in this area and what could be lost. The attention he got from publishing these books and his other efforts paid off in 1998 when the Richard Mellon Foundation made a grant that bought the power company land and preserved it. And so after decades of hard work, the land was preserved as a result of the efforts of C. Thomas Wyke. One of the impressive land features of the area is Table Rock in Table Rock State Park. Table Rock is either the beginning or the end of the hike, depending on which direction you go. Table Rock itself is a huge chunk of metamorphic rock pushed up 350 million years ago. 
It's South Carolina's most photographed natural wonder. It's a 3,100-foot-high granite dome, so that's close to 1,000 meters. And it's about a 2,000-foot-up hike to the top. For the Cherokee, the Table Rock was a spiritual retreat. A Cherokee legend says that it was an eating table for a giant mythological chieftain. The shorter part of the mountain, known as the stool, was his seat at the table. And the famous blue haze in the mountains is the shadow of his great spirit. Table Rock State Park was built by the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s. The CCC was one of those New Deal programs that came out of the Great Depression and President Roosevelt and resulted in building lots of uh, park facilities around the United States, including Table Rock State Park. Okay, so let's talk for a moment about the trail itself. Talk of building a trail in the region began in the 1960s, and there was some initial construction in 1968 that began, though the route has changed substantially over time. The success story here in creating a trail, it was a result of a collaborative effort. In the early 1970s, there was a collaboration between the U.S. Forest Service, the state of South Carolina, the Pendleton Historic and Recreation Commission, Duke Power Company, and Clemson University. And that led to the creation in 1974 of the Foothills Trail Conservancy, which was an organization established to promote and support the development of the trail. The trail was completed in 1981, and as a result, we have this 77-mile trail, which is about 124 kilometers. So there you have it, an amazing location with a billion years of history and some amazing people dedicated to preserving it. And now let's talk with Nancy East about her experiences on the Foothills Trail. Nancy East of Hope and Feather Travels, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Nancy, your blog caught my attention because of this really good article called The Planning Guide for a Foothills Trail Through Hike. And so I saw when I looked at your blog that there's a lot of uh, great information on the blog. Tell me a little bit about Hope and Feather Travels and, and what the blog is about. Yeah, sure. So I started it in, I believe it was 2010. It was quite a while ago. My mom passed away of cancer in 2010. And I just wanted to find some type of a creative outlet to deal with my grief in a healthy way. And I've always liked to write. So it really just started as kind of a daily journal, uh, just a family life. But the more I got outside and hiked, the more I realized that's really what spoke to my soul as far as healing. And so I started to write about my hikes and people would just pick up on the post in Google searches and whatnot. And so it just kind of evolved into more of a hiking website than anything else. But uh, also search and rescue is a big part of my life. I've been part of a team for about five years. And so once I joined that team, it evolved even more to include a lot of content about outdoor education, safety, uh, hiker preparedness tips and tricks and that type of thing. So it's kind of a you know, potpourri of different things, but the mainstays of it and the anchors nowadays are probably outdoor education and travel journals. One of the other things I noticed on on the blog is the focus on wilderness adventures with kids. Could you talk a little bit about that? 
Yes. So when I started it, my kids would start at the blog. My kids were pretty young and I homeschooled them at the time. And so we spent a tremendous amount of time outdoors just doing schoolwork and a lot of experiential type learning. We live in just a mecca of outdoor adventuring here in Western North Carolina. So I started to do just bigger and bigger adventures and outings with them, started with day hikes, but then started to eventually backpack a little bit with them. And so, yeah, it's it's been a big part of our lives ever since. They're all teenagers now, and so they're a little more vocal about what they like and don't like to do. So we have to adapt and modify sometimes for what they enjoy outdoors, but it all works. It's still a big part of our lives to adventures of family. I have to ask you, do they still like to go backpacking? Because I've had my kids, for example, who are young adults now really still love backpacking, but I have a good friend who we used to hike with when the kids were young and his daughter isn't, isn't really into it as an adult or a young adult. So I'm curious if your kids are still excited about it. Not initially. No, it takes some convincing to get them out the door. But once they're there, I see them light up. You know, I see them really get engaged and excited about certain aspects of it. So they're never really willing participants at this age. But I do find that they still enjoy it, whether they want to admit it or not. So how did you come to backpacking originally? Let's see. Probably in about 97 is, well, maybe more of early 90s, probably. I was in college, an undergraduate, and I went to Auburn University in Alabama, and a friend introduced me to backpacking in the Smokies, and so we would come up quite a bit. I just loved it. It was just love at first trip. So we would come up on weekends and do backpacking trips and then go home and and study for the week, but that became kind of a regular thing. I'm a retired veterinarian, but when I was in vet school especially, that was when it was a big outlet in my life, just with the stress of school. It was just a lot of fun if we had a break with our clinics and, and whatnot to come up here and explore. So so that's when I got my start. It was not something I grew up doing. I grew up in Atlanta and had more kind of an urban childhood. We did a lot of things outdoors, but hiking, camping, backpacking, those just weren't any of the things that we did. So you mentioned that you're part of a search and rescue team. Could you talk a little bit about that? To me, that's an interesting way to engage with the outdoors and an interesting way to contribute back to the outdoor community. Yeah, sure. So I joined our team about, like I said, five years ago. There was a woman who came over here from East Tennessee to do a day hike on Cold Mountain, which is the mountain that the book and the movie are based off of. And as she was coming down the mountain, she leaned against a tree that just happened to be decaying and it gave way with her weight on it and went careening down a mountainside, a pretty steep part of the mountain, and it took her with it. So she was uh, unconscious for most of the time that she was missing, but she was missing for almost three days. And so it became, yeah, a really high profile search, a lot of activity in the media about it because no one knew if she had been abducted or what had happened. But thankfully, she was found, and it was kind of one of those nail biters in the nick of time because it was the fall and a cold, rainy front was coming through, and there's no way she could have survived the the night that she was found had she not been found. So she was a, a tremendous success story. Thankfully, she recovered from all her injuries. They were pretty extensive. But it really opened my eyes, number one, to what can go wrong out there, especially as a solo hiker, which I do quite often. And two, that our county had a search and rescue team. I thought it's the perfect way to give it back or pay it forward just to the hiking community here. And I called the next day and and asked how to apply to be on the team. And it went from there. That's great. Uh, It's really important to have people like you and those teams out there uh, when people are in need, for sure. 
One of the other things that I that I noticed in us trying to coordinate uh, a time to talk is that you are sometimes away guiding trips. Can you tell me a little bit about what that's about? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a new thing in my life. Like I said, I retired from veterinary medicine. That was back in 2020. I had took on a pretty big project in the Smokies, and that became all-consuming. I wanted to raise money for their search and rescue program, specifically their preventative search and rescue program, to hire some rangers geared towards educating visitors about staying what we call safe and found. And they needed the funding. And there's just with any national park, as I'm sure you know, there's never the right amount of funding for all the things they want to do. And I thought, well, I'm going to take it upon myself to try to raise for this specific line item. So I hiked all the trails in the park. It amounts to about 950 miles of hiking and did it as a speed record. So I did it in about 29 days with a really good friend of mine. And so we raised that money uh, for that. But that came with a lot of media attention just because it became an enormous fundraiser. And that led to some channels to start guiding for a local a luxury resort here in Haywood County that has what they call experts in residence. They rotate through people that have some type of, you know, certification, like I'm a, a certified naturalist, you know, birders, that type of thing. And we rotate through. And then I'm guiding for a woman who leads synchronous firefly walks right now. This time of year, we have something pretty unique here in the Smokies. We have a, a species of firefly that they all blink in unison for about 10 seconds, and then they just stop. It's like somebody turns off a light switch. So they're pretty special and rare. So I help her with those night walks. I'm actually hopefully about to start guiding with Jennifer Farr Davis, who is the former speed record holder on the Appalachian Trail, the overall record. And she has a guiding company here in Asheville. So we've been talking and, and hopefully I'll start helping and working with her soon. Okay, so you said something there that I have to go back to. You said you hiked all 950 miles of trail. This is a Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Yeah, and that's something I've actually done three times, but yeah, one time it was a faster lap. <laughs> and this was all in, you said, was it 29 days? You 29 said? days, 29 days and 10 hours. Yeah, yeah. I did it side by side with a very dear friend of mine. We tag teamed it together for safety purposes, going out on, you know, average of 32 mile hikes per day was a little bit, uh, you know, higher risk to do it by yourself. Uh, we would have been fine, but it just felt safer and we're really good friends and wanted to do it together. And so, yeah, we had a blast, but it was, it was certainly rigorous <laughs> to say the least. That seems like quite an adventure. Um, and you said you've done that three times? I've done all the trails in the Smokies three times. I'm closing in on the wow. fourth. Yeah, it's just practically right in my backyard. So it's an easy place to go hike. I like that all the trails are so well maintained, or at least most of them are deep in the interior. It gets a little sketchy sometimes just with overgrowth. But uh, yeah, it's just it's my oasis. I really enjoy being in the park as much as possible. I want to switch directions a little bit before we talk about the Foothills Trail. Um, one of the posts I saw on your blog was about hiking with kids. And I know your kids are a little bit older now. And, um, but you posted some great information uh, about how you can really work with kids and getting out there. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the advice you have for people who might be thinking about even just day hiking or, or camping trips with lots of hiking or even backpacking if they're ready for that. And what what you might tell somebody to be thinking about to get their kids to enjoy the backpacking or hiking trip? Yeah, that's it's always a work in progress. I've discovered with their ages, it really depends on you know where they are, just with development and all that, how willing they are to go, and what I feel like caters to their interest and whatnot. 
But I think that the biggest takeaway that I would say is start them young, but start small. I think that if I could go back and do it over again, I might not have been as ambitious as I was about getting them out there all the time. I thought that eventually they would just learn to love it. And they do. They they really do enjoy certain aspects of it, even if they act like they don't. But I think that sometimes I probably force the issue a little too much. I probably, instead of just hiking, should have probably just gone to a creek and played more often than saying, let's hike a mile in and then play. You know, I think that I probably could have redirected it a little bit to suit uh, the age appropriateness of some of the stuff we did. But that being said, I do feel like they have a deeper sense of appreciation. And I think I fostered some environmental awareness in them from a young age. So there's give and take, but I would definitely say start small and pack a lot of patience. <laughs> you know, there's always going to be something with kids that that makes it a little more challenging. But uh, and, and lots of snacks, lots of fun snacks, throw nutrition out the window, pack fun stuff that they're going to love. That was usually a carrot and some, a fun meal at the end of a hike was always a good carrot, too. That is all really good advice. And I did the same with my kids and trying to get them out there and uh, definitely starting small helps. And, I, you know, each the way I did it is each year I would add another night or a longer day or something a little bit more rustic, you know, a little bit further from a trailhead where there's less amenities and, you know, always making it a little bit more challenging every year. And I totally agree that it's nice to have some reward at the end, including something like a bag of M&Ms or a good lake that they can swim in if you can get there early enough in the day where there's still plenty of warmth and sunshine where they can enjoy that instead of, you know, showing up at camp at dinner time when they're tired and angry. <laughs> and, yes. and so, yeah, it, it, the way I think about it is when I'm hiking with somebody else, and this doesn't just go for kids, but if I'm, you know, you know this now in leading hikes, but it, when I've taken other people backpacking who aren't as experienced in backpacking, it's their hike, not mine, is the way I think about it. And you really have to adjust the trip and adjust your thinking so that you think about it through their eyes, whether that's a five-year-old kid or a 35-year-old who's never been backpacking. You know, what is this going to feel like to them? How hard is it going to be? What are their expectations? And so, you know, I do think it's important to think about that kind of thing when you're taking somebody else and, and they're trusting you to show them um, something wonderful, but also something that's sort of, you know, skill level appropriate. <laughs> Absolutely. That is really good advice. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't do probably enough of that when they were younger, but, but they still all love the outdoors. They just have different interests than hiking and backpacking if they're going to choose the adventure these days. So, but yeah, it all works out. One of the great things is they may come back to it someday, right? They have that. It's sort of a base level of knowledge and experience where they're not going to fear that. Let, let's say they have the kind of experience you did in college where they meet a friend who's into backpacking. They're not going to fear doing it because they've done it. They get it. They understand what it is. And they might see it in a different way when it's with their friends versus with their mom, right? Very <laughs> true. And I even honestly hear them sometimes talking to their friends. And it's almost like they have bragging rights because of some of the stuff they do, even though they would never admit to me that they enjoyed it. They'll I hear them say, you know, oh, we went and hiked the Foothills Trail or whatever. And they they do like having that little feather in their cap of saying they've done some of these cool things. So that's a good segue. Let's switch to the Foothills Trail and talk about that now. That's our, our trail for today. How did you learn about this trail? This trail is right in your backyard, essentially, right? It 
a little bit further. The Smokies are pretty close, but the foothills, because it's in predominantly South Carolina and it kind of skirts the line of Georgia, and it is partly in North Carolina as well, but it's about an hour and a half, no matter which trailhead I get to. So it's a, a little bit further of a drive, but it's known regionally just as a spectacular, you know, moderate distance hiking trail for this area. Certainly, we have the Appalachian Trail and things like that that run through here, too. But if you're going to look for something that you can start and finish within a week's time frame, it's fairly unique in that way. So I don't even remember specifically where I found out about it. I just have known about it for many years and had it on my list and decided to finally start chipping away at it. You've hiked it twice, right? I have, yes. I did it last Mother's Day, just as a three-day weekend trip. And with my kids, we did it in sections, just because it was uh, just more amenable to their ages at the time to do it that way. And so you mentioned the fact that it's, you know, it's a good distance in the sense that most people can do it with a week off from work. Was that what attracted you to it? It wasn't as, you know, huge of a challenge as trying to take on a big section of the Appalachian Trail or, or something like that. But it yeah. You know, it's a beautiful trail, like you said, with a doable distance. Was that sort of the, the impetus for doing it? It was for me, yes. I, back in college, I always, I had dreams of hiking the Appalachian Trail. I was still fairly new to backpacking, but it just really piqued my interest when I found out about it, because I never even knew that this footpath extended from Georgia to Maine until I was in college. But life happens. You know, I, I graduated, found my dream job here in Waynesville. And so I didn't want to give up that chance. And I thought, well, the, the trail will always be there and it will be. So one day I'll do it. But yeah, I, I really seek out linear trails that I can do in a shorter amount of time, just because it does feed that part of uh, just my curiosity of through hiking. So this one felt like a, a reasonable distance at 77 miles to knock out pretty quickly, um, you know, on my own, certainly when I did it as a through hike. But with the kids, I knew that they would feel that sense of empowerment and accomplishment once we finally finished all of it. It took us a while to get through all the sections, but, but we eventually got there. Did you do it over one season or one year with the kids or was it spread out even further in time? It was, gosh, I want to say it was about a year and a half. But it, what was interesting was that we wound up hiking it in all four seasons. There was just the different sections we did and we didn't plan it that way. It just happened that way. But it was really interesting to go back and look at it and look at all the different seasons that we did hike it in, what the pros and cons to each were. And uh, it just really gave you a, a unique vantage point doing it that way, I felt like, versus just one linear through hike that you do all in one season. What did you do to go about planning the hike? And I know it may be very different for the times you were trying to put it together over a longer period of time with your kids versus your through hike. But maybe we'll talk about the through hike as far as you know, thinking about doing it as a through hike. Um, what was the planning process for that? Yeah, they were definitely different, only because I do feel like there were more resources when I did it last year. I was amazed at how much more was out there now versus when I did it with my kids about, gosh, I want to say about five years ago, maybe six at this point. But at the time, the Foothills Trail Association, the website was probably my most reliable source of information and most comprehensive, and it still is. I went to visit the site this morning before we got on this interview, and it's still a great resource. But now, thankfully, there are some others that if people like books, there are a couple of books. And actually, one of the guidebooks was in existence when we did it, and it was incredibly helpful, almost so detailed that it would get a little confusing because you'd want to pare it down to just kind of the bare minimum. How do I get to a trailhead? How many miles is it? And it would go into a lot of extensive detail. 
But now, thankfully, someone, I think, had that thought and thought, I'm going to take all this information and distill it down into more of a pocket guide that's a little bit easier to take with them. And so I've purchased that just recently, and it's great. So I like both books for different reasons, but I think they're both great planning resources in addition to the association's website. Okay. And so the is it the Hiking South Carolina Hiking South Carolina's Foothills Trail by Scott Lynch. Is that the more broad, more comprehensive book? Yep, that's it right there. It's just a small little pocket guide. It's not very big at all, but it would be very easy to take with you. Uh, And I know your listeners can't see these books, but this is the other one. This is the one that I used several years ago that's much thicker and the paper. That's the Foothills Trail Guidebook. Exactly. Yeah. That's okay. the one that the, the association, I believe, created. And it's still great. I still love it. And I think they're both, they both have their merits. But as far as taking one, the one by Lynch is definitely a better one to take, I think, on your through hike. In addition to, actually, the, um, I think it's anti-gravity gear that makes this little pocket guide. And this thing just comes out. It's just one sheet of paper, but it has all the elevation changes, water sources, campsites, all that stuff, all on just one small piece of paper that you could even laminate and make it a little more durable to, to take with you. It's supposedly waterproof, but it gets a little worn, I think, with, with water over time. Okay, th- those are all great resources. You mentioned that you hiked it with your kids in all four seasons. What, what would you tell people is the best time of year to try to hike this trail? Yeah, I've thought a lot about that. And really, there's so much unique beauty in each season. I think winter just inherently carries more risks. And I think sometimes people hear Foothills Trail and they underestimate the terrain. It definitely, in winter, can get dicey. There are some rocky outcroppings, specifically near Table Rock State Park or in within the park's limits. And it can get I would think pretty icy if there's any precipitation up there. So I would say winter would be beautiful, but just be very mindful of those conditions. But I think spring and fall are probably the sweet spots, just those shoulder seasons, not too hot. Summer can get brutally hot in South Carolina, even in the foothills and bring with it some other hazards like yellow jackets and some venomous snakes and all that, which may or may not be an issue for anyone. But for us, they were in the summer, which we might talk about later. But Spring and fall, I think, would be the the seasons that I would choose. When I did it over Mother's Day weekend, I thought it was absolutely perfect. And it wasn't too hot, but it wasn't so early in spring that you'd carry the risk of winter precipitation still. What is the weather situation in that part of South Carolina? What is it, you know, what are you worried about? Is it just rain? Does it get to snow in certain times of the year? Or is it constant rain? Like, what's the issue? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting area. Here in western North Carolina, we deal with more snow. But in that part of South Carolina and North Carolina, ice is more of a hazard there. It seems like ice storms tend to hit them as well as tornadoes and other things like that. We just don't get tornadoes much here because the mountains sort of block it from happening. But down there, the mountains aren't as high. And so I think it carries more risk and certainly more risk of flooding in those low-lying areas as well. Uh, We experience that actually on one of our section hikes with the kids, some of the flooding that can happen. But yeah, I would say the heat, just people who are sensitive to heat, it can get brutally hot. Uh, There's a lot of low-lying areas along the trail that don't have much elevation at all to cool you off. And those would, I think, probably be the biggest environmental weather risks, in my opinion. 
some of those low-lying areas are actually in flood zones, right? I think you mentioned that in one of your posts. That yes. There might actually be a flood risk if you're camping in a low-lying area. I, I think so, yeah, especially along maybe the, the Chattooga River. Um, and some there's some other really big waterways that you cross. Thankfully, they're all bridged. That's one of the wonderful things about the Foothills Trail is the association just does an amazing job of keeping it safe. They bridge even small little streams that I think, wow, you could just rock hop that probably even in heavy rain, but they bridge everything. It's great. So your feet can pretty much stay dry unless it does rain. But yeah, yeah, you just have to be mindful of that kind of stuff for sure. The flooding could could certainly be an issue if you've got torrential rain for days on end, that type of thing. So you mentioned that the trail is 77 miles and that's about 125 kilometers roughly. And you also mentioned that you did it in a series of, you know, it seemed like with the kids, it was some day hiking, some backpacking. And then when you did it over at Mother's Day weekend, you did the entire trail in three days. So those are kind of extreme ends, I think, for most people. What do you think is sort of the sweet spot for a typical backpacker and how long this would take them to do or what's a good amount of time to really enjoy the trail, but also not feel like you're going too slow? I would say anywhere from five to seven would be enough to really enjoy it and just take your time and not just gut yourself to get to campsites every day because it is a challenging trail. It's not as challenging as, say, some of the routes in the Smokies just because the elevation gain and loss isn't as much. But at the same time, some of the pitches are pretty steep and it can be fairly rocky in areas and rooty. And so you just have to go slower and take your time. It's well maintained as far as overgrowth and all that, but it just the terrain itself can be a little bit slower going in certain spots. So five probably for somebody who has experience, but if somebody is fairly new, I think it's a great trail for somebody just starting out and wants to do a, a longer backpacking route. But I'd probably say seven for someone like that with a resupply somewhere in the middle. Five, you could get by, I think, without a resupply pretty easily. And you said there's ups and downs, but it sounds like they're not too severe compared to, you know, for example, compared to the Smokies. Yes, exactly. There are some. There's one in particular in the middle called Heartbreak Ridge, which everybody makes a big to-do about. It's a series of hundreds of steps on either side of this mountain that you go up and over. And if it's raining, those steps can get a little bit slippery, so you just have to go more slowly, especially downhill. But I didn't find it as challenging as all the hype. I thought the most challenging section for me personally was at Table Rock State Park, which is either the one terminus or the other. I mean, you could either start your hike there or end it. I've ended it there both times. But coming off of that last mountain, I think it's about a five or six mile descent. And it's really steep and it's very exposed. They've had some, I think, some forest fires, maybe wildfires in that area. And so you're just really exposed to a lot of heat in warmer weather. And even last Mother's Day, I remember just really being hot coming down it. And it definitely is, I'd say, Smokies kind of steep terrain. It definitely gets a little more rugged. And so going up it, if you were at the start of your hike, would be a challenge too. But I felt it in particular, it was, it was tough going down it. Hiking poles definitely came in handy. Yeah, those are great. I, I use them on every backpacking trip. They certainly, right. it's better to be a four-legged animal than a two-legged animal, I always say. <laughs> yes, for sure. What about gear for this trip? Do you think sort of standard backpacking gear works pretty well? Anything you would adjust that um, would be atypical for this trip? Yeah, I would say probably two things. Well, hiking poles for sure, but like you, I, t I take those everywhere. 
And I honestly think because part of the trail is in a temperate rainforest and you're just in the southeast where it rains a lot anyway in, in normal years this year, it's been a little dry, but I carry a hiking umbrella and that's one of my favorite things to always have in my pack. But I feel like it's come in handy on the foothills a lot. Every time I've ever hiked any sections of it, it seems like afternoon thunder showers happen or days on end of rain. And I'm always thankful I have it. I have an attachment system on my shoulder strap that makes it very easy to walk hands free. And yeah, I'd say something like that in, in Benadryl. I'd say yellow jackets are always a problem out there in the warmer seasons, it seems like. And if you're sensitive to that, definitely bring an EpiPen if you have any anaphylactic reactions and Benadryl at a minimum just to keep, you know, some of the, the itching and the, the pain at bay if you can. Just that antihistamine effect can go a long way. I'd imagine the water needs to be filtered. It does. Yes, yes. I okay. recommend filtering any water anywhere I go. But yeah, I would absolutely filter, especially just some of those rivers are heavily used by people boating. Lake Jocassee is, is one of the waterways that you come across as well. And yeah, I think there's a, a pretty high likelihood of contamination. Sometimes in the Smokies, I know people are a little more liberal with it up high in some of the spring heads. I am not. I always filter, but I wouldn't dare not filter on the Foothills Trail. And what about food storage? I know there are some bears in the area, and I imagine there's other kinds of critters. What do, what do you recommend people do for food storage? Yeah, that's evolved. Thankfully, the campsites now, there are designated campsites along the length of the trail, and Boy Scout troops and I think Eagle Scouts have made it their projects to really just, I mean, make these almost like front country campgrounds without cars. They have benches, sometimes picnic tables. They've even installed bear cables. So I used to say, you know, bring something like an ursac or maybe a bear canister. There's not a lot of trees to hang your food well. It's really very difficult to do a proper bear hang just because the limbs of these trees, a lot of pines, are up so high that it's it's a challenge to get any a line across it that high. But now that the bear cables are installed, it makes it so easy. So that part, I think, is just bring whatever bag you want to keep your food in. Maybe an ursac is still probably a good idea just for rodent purposes. But uh, for mm -hmm. the bears, I think you're pretty set. And you mentioned the idea of a possible resupply. If people were going to break this into two parts and have a resupply in the middle, where would you recommend people do that? I think probably the best place to do that, there's a place called Badwater Access, and there's a large parking lot there. Um, you could, you know, put food in a cache and like a bear canister and hide it easily in the woods or have someone deliver it to you. That's essentially the midway point of the hike. There's also a place called Whitewater Falls, but that's not quite in the middle, so you'd be a little bit heavy on one end or the other. But that's another easily, well, I say easy. None of these places are super easy to access. They're all fairly remote, but the easiest place to access would be those two, I think. And one of the things you also mentioned is that you hiked it both times the same direction. Remind me, was that, was that south to north? It was, yes, south to north, yeah, sort of more west to east, I guess. I'm trying to think of geographically, but yes, it was from Oconee oh, okay. to Table Rock. Yeah. Uh, why did you decide to hike it in that direction? And what do you recommend people think about in determining which way to hike it? Yeah. I, I'm, you know, I wish I could remember back last year why I decided to hike it in the same direction, because a lot of times I, I do like to change it up if I do the same trail twice. I think the the best answer I think is what I wanted to do is 
kind of have the highlight reel effect of going through it with my kids all those years ago. And I did. I, I kept passing on these landmarks and I would think, oh, I remember where this happened or that happened. And it was really memorable just having that go through my head the entire time. Yeah. And I think that's really the only reason I chose to do it in the same direction. But if I do it again, which I'm sure I will, it's an easy one to do. It's close to home. I'll do it the other way because I'd like to experience it both ways. Um, but it's kind of a pick your poison thing just because Table Rock State Park has the more challenging terrain. If you start out there, you've got a really beefy climb right out of the gate versus ending on a steep descent. So it just depends on which one you like the least is where I would probably recommend starting. And what about arranging transportation? I think I saw that the in your post that the Foothills Trail Conservancy actually has volunteers that may help people shuttle from one or shuttle back to their starting point of their car. They do. Yeah. And I hear great things. I've never used any of the shuttles. My husband shuttled me last time. And yeah, I think that they're very dependable and they're, they really have hearts of gold. The people who work on this trail, there's a group of them that I think it's mostly retired age people who have more time to spare with that kind of thing. But they love the trail and they love helping hikers succeed in hiking it. So it's a very strong association. One of the um, things that people like me might think about is so if I'm you know coming from the West Coast and I wanted to hike this trail, what are the, some of the things in the area that I would consider seeing, or is there a good place, to, a good town that you recommend staying in if people wanted to come the night before and just have a nice evening, you know, before they set out on the trail the next morning? You know, what what other attractions are, are close to the trail? Yeah, I was looking at a map to think about that one a little bit more. There's no specific town that's, that the town or the trail cuts through, so it's a little bit challenging to find towns right there by the trail. But I would say Highlands, North Carolina, or Cashers. It's spelled C-A-S-H-I-E-R-S, but people say Cashers. It's not Cashiers. Those are two really nice mountain towns. They uh, are close to Oconee State Park, and so they're probably the closest ones that I can think of on that end. But at Table Rock, gosh, I would have to look at a map again to see. the. There's just really not a lot that's super close by uh, to that area, but probably the Anderson area of South Carolina or some smaller towns in the surrounding area of South Carolina would be the best place. But Oconee State Park actually has great front country camping. It's a beautiful state park. South Carolina just really does a great job with all their state park systems. So if you like front country camping, I think I would probably stay there, you know, the night before I got started shuttle cars the day before. And if you had two cars or, or get shuttled and then start early the next morning from Oconee would be probably my suggestion. And there's no permits required to do this trail? No, no permits. You do have to have parking passes for either state park. And I think this was just a COVID thing. But when I hiked it last year, there were certain days that the park was actually closed and you had to time it properly to get out or else you'd get locked in because the campground wasn't open. It was just a lot more stringent with that type of stuff. But I think that was just COVID specific. I don't think that's a normal occurrence, but I would probably check the website just to make sure because I'm not 100% sure if they've just changed it altogether. One other thing I noticed is that this, uh, the entire length of this trail is uh, four-legged friend friendly. Yes. And I did take our dog, actually my friend that I did this with in sections with her children, we both took our dogs on a couple of different hikes and they did great. I always recommend as a veterinarian, it's hard for me not to recommend leashing your dog, just no matter how well behaved they are. It's just a better experience for people you come across. 
and for the safety of the dogs. Uh, dogs in this area, one of the most common things I saw when I practiced full time were snake bites. And dogs are just oh, naturally yeah. curious, you know, and they hear a rattlesnake and they want to go after it or are curious when they hear that rattle. And we had a lot of, of snake bite cases. So that's another reason just to keep them close by or at a minimum get some training so they are aware of, of snakes and what to do. Uh, but that can be more extensive and involved than most people want to deal with. So we've been talking a lot about the logistics of doing this. Like, I think one of the things that would be helpful for a lot of people who aren't familiar with the area is just what does the area feel like, look like, you know, what kind of environment is this that this trail goes through? Yeah, that to me is one of the best parts of this trail. It really is a treasure. And I didn't know how much I would appreciate it until I actually hiked it. But you've got everything. You have forested walking, mountain vistas. There are no, you know, mountains that are bald that are, you know, kind of that sound of music feel to them. There's nothing like that. But you get enough views from the sides of mountains and the the summits that it's just breathtaking in some of them, especially some of the ones near Table Rock with our big granite outcroppings. Uh, water features are just in abundance. You've got Lake Jocassi, which is just an amazingly pristine and beautiful lake. And three of the most impressive waterfalls, I think, in the entire southeast are along the trail. And one of them is actually the tallest waterfall in all of the southeast, White Waterfalls. And that one's impressive to see. You do have to get off of the trail just a little bit to see the waterfall in all its glory, but it's well worth a side trip to do that. But the other two are, are right on the trail. You can't miss them there. Uh, I think it's Virginia Hawkins, and I believe it's called Laurel Falls are the two others that are really impressive. Well, one of the things that I was thinking about is the wildlife in the area. We've talked about there are probably some bears in the area. You've mentioned some of the snakes as, as something to be thinking about. And also, you mentioned yellow jackets. Could you talk a little bit about that? It seemed like on your trip with your kids, that was actually a major issue. It turned into one. I was very thankful nobody had anaphylactic reactions to them because some of our kids had never been stung before. So it was a first for us. But I feel like that was somewhat of a unique year because I don't read reports of as many yellow jackets as we encountered. And we encountered them, I'd say, from the spring all the way up into November. It was just an abnormally warm year. If I remember right, it was a fairly wet year. And I'm not sure if that had anything to do with it. But every time we went out, we I don't know. We were magnets for him. We would get in these nests. And my son on one trip got stung, I think, 14 times. And he just walked right over a nest. Wow. And yeah, it was a little scary because we were so far away from the trailhead. But he did okay. He had to just walk out and suffer through it. But yeah, we really had a heck of a time with those yellow jackets. And they're typically a problem only in just a short, finite part of the year. But they just seemed to linger that year. And every time we went out, we were always tripping over a nest at some point. We got better at seeing them in the distance, but they're hard because they're ground dwellers. And so you don't necessarily see like a paper wasp, you know, nest or anything like that. You just have to watch for the, the motion of them in front of the trail ahead of you. And that's not always very apparent until you're right on top of it. In the trip you did with your kids, you also had some pretty intense rain, it sounded like. Was that something that was unusual for the area or was it just sort of one of the risks of doing this hike is you might end up in a, a rainy week. Yeah, at the time I thought it was novel to us, but no, I think it, it's fairly common to, to see a lot of rain like that, especially in spring, and that's when we were out. 
and it just it wasn't predicted to rain as much as it did. I certainly looked at the forecast before we left, but just this front kind of lingered and stalled over that particular area, and so we were just so waterlogged. We finally got off trail a day early because everything, we woke up one morning just literally floating in our tents. The tents were still staked <laughs> out. It wasn't like we were floating down the river, but it was like a waterbed, so <laughs> we were, we were kind of over it. So we had a friend meeting us that day to join us with her kids, and we couldn't get in touch with her to tell her to not come. So she came and she was very kind and, and gracious to just give us rides back to our car and call it quits. But uh, yeah, definitely be prepared for lots of rain just because it can happen. But you can't always rely on forecast here. They, they can certainly kind of create their own patterns as these fronts come through. So I think it might make sense to talk about what would be a good itinerary to do this hike. And and I know that your your itinerary with your kids is a little bit unconventional because of the way you were able to do it. And I think as we talked about, even the itinerary when you did your solo hike is a little bit unconventional because of the speed. How would you best think about going through this hike um, in a way that might help people understand, you know, good places to camp, highlight campsites or or a way that they might want to do this trip? Yeah, I would say as a starting point, get one of those two books. And, you know, if you really are like me and just love to, to kind of geek out on trail books like this, get them both because they both have their merits. And again, that pocket guide would be a wonderful one to take with you because then you would know specific mile markers of where these campsites are. And I know people camp in other places besides these designated campsites, but I think the association would like to center people's efforts around just finding, just because of Leave No Trace, around these designated sites. And they really are so nice. Uh, and I never have found the trail to be that busy. It has gotten more popular in recent years, and I think that the activity on it is a little bit increased. Uh, and especially the warmer seasons. But I think if you go in spring and fall, it might not be quite as bad as summer. Summer to me, again, would be the worst time to do it besides winter uh, as far as the risks, just because of the heat. But I think that's when most people have the opportunity to do it if they're out of school or whatnot. But I would say get those books as a starting point. Look at the association's website. There is a Facebook group that has a lot of good activity as well. It seems fairly active. I haven't looked at it in quite a while, but there are some helpful tips in there, just people who have been on it recently who can share any type of hazards that they may have encountered and whatnot. Yeah, those are the big things. And I did like the uh, the pocket guide that anti-gravity gear makes as well. That's, that's what I carried. Um, I use Gaia to navigate the entire way. I mean, I, I took a paper map as well. The paper map that I used back when my kids did it with me, it was it's too big. There's just too much area on it. And so I was not crazy about the map. It was hard to read it and to actually use it for any type of purposeful navigation. But the trail is so well marked, it's blazed. And so it's it's pretty hard to get lost if you're paying attention. Are there any highlights? You mentioned White Waterfalls. Are there any other highlights that you that people should be looking forward to along this trek? Yeah, I think just all the rivers, some of their suspension bridges across some of them. And so those are just really kind of fun in and of themselves because they're so long. Uh, there's a campsite right on the shores of Lake Jocassee, and I think that's a really nice one. We did run into a lot of boaters the weekend that we stayed there, so I would probably recommend to try to do, if you do stay at that one, stay during the week where maybe there's not quite as much activity, uh, because with boating comes a lot of coolers full of all kinds of things that make people rowdy, and so it was a, it was a fairly sleepless night. It was just a lot of activity there, but 
trying to think what else. The Oconee Bell, that's a wildflower in the spring. If you go, I think about mid to late April is when they bloom. And it's fairly unique to that area. I don't think they bloom really anywhere else that I've heard of. And they're just this beautiful little white flower, but I think they can grow in mass profusion along the trail. And I know a lot of wildflower lovers actually go out on the trail only during that time to seek out that particular one. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many treasures. You really do just get a little bit of everything. The forests, the streams, the waterfalls, just great campsites, great tread, uh, as far as just the trail being maintained. So it's just everything that you'd ever want, I think, in a short hiking trail experience. It has it. It really does have it, for this region anyway. You mentioned before that there were pine trees that, you know, we were talking about hanging food. Is this mostly a hardwood forest or mostly a pine forest or a little mix of both? Or what is this? What are the what is the forest like in this area? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. There's a little bit of everything. Yeah, that you do have some regions that are just kind of, you know, mostly pine, um, pine oak type forest. But then you have some more cove hardwood forests, which have all types of deciduous trees like maple and poplar and birch and things that grow more traditionally in the Smokies is what people would think of. And there's even one section in particular that reminds me a lot of the Smokies. And you do get some hemlocks, but not a whole lot. You typically see those at higher elevations around here, and they they just don't seem to grow as commonly in that area. But you get a, a nice diversity of, of all types of trees and evergreen and deciduous. It's not all just one or the other, uh, but you actually go through little pockets of each type of zone. And so it's kind of neat to go from one end to the other because you do you are exposed to quite a bit as far as that goes. It seems like there weren't too many road crossings either, that you are pretty much out there most of the time. Maybe there's a couple or two to three road crossings, but it seems like the sections between roads are pretty significant as far as distance. There are. There, I'd say it depends on where you are. There is a long stretch towards the middle. I think it's about 21 miles or so of, of roadless stretch. And so that makes it a challenging experience if you're trying to day hike it and section hike it. There is a way that you can hike down from Gorges State Park down to the trail and actually take a boat shuttle across Lake Jocassi to, to kind of divide that section up if you didn't want to do it all in one swoop as a day hike or even a backpack. And that's what we did with the kids. And the kids loved that just because they got to ride in a boat at the end of the day. So that was a fun experience. But there are quite a few road crossings elsewhere, though. That's the longest stretch. But a lot of them are fairly remote because they're just forest service roads that aren't always in the best shape. So I wouldn't necessarily rely on those for somebody to meet you there as a pickup point or a food drop off, because depending on the car, it just may not make it up some of those roads, depending on the season too. They, they're fairly maintained in the summer, but I think in the off seasons, they sometimes even gate some of them, so you can't even get to them. I always feel like a raccoon when I come across, when I come out of a trail and I'm like, go across some remote paved road, no car in either direction, then go back into the forest. You know, I have this sense of what an animal must feel like when they cross roads. That's a good analogy. Yes, for sure. (laughs) And so one of the other things I noticed is along the trail is Sassafras Mountain, which is the highest point in South Carolina. And it seemed from the picture like you weren't too thrilled with the way it looked at the top or am I reading that right? You did. I need to update that post. Yes, because since then they have made it just a showcase. It's beautiful now. They have this amazing observation tower. 
uh, or, or kind of a ramp with a, a viewing platform that's not necessarily a tower, but they were doing the construction. When we did it with our kids, it looked like, you know, a war zone because they had just bulldozed everything and kind of clear cut the top of it. But now that they have finished the project, it's really, I forgot all about that. Yeah, it's one of the nicest places on the trail and it's the highest point in South Carolina. I think it's just a little over 3,000 feet, so not very high, but you do climb, not from the base of it, but about midway up, there's a road crossing where the trail bisects and then you go up to the top, but it's a beefy little climb. You know, you know you've climbed a mountain, so there's that sense of accomplishment when you get to it. And there's actually one of my favorite campsites nearby heading towards Table Rock. Uh, there's some people who have over the years created stone chairs out of some of the boulders in the campsite. And so they call them the stone thrones and they encircle a fire pit if they're still there. I'm assuming it's all still intact, but it's kind of neat, especially for kids. They just thought that was the coolest thing ever that somebody had made chairs out of big boulders like that. Yeah, you've got kind of a medieval campsite going, huh? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, I think, about a mile and a half, maybe two miles from Sassafras. But yeah, Sassafras is definitely a treasure. And I can't believe I forgot that to mention that in the highlights, because that's kind of neat to go across one of the highest summits in the United States as far as a state goes. Yeah, that's cool. Maybe we can move on to talking a little bit about the big picture on this. Why would somebody want to hike this trail? You've mentioned, I think, some of the reasons. But if you think about it, if I'm thinking about different places to go, why is the Foothills Trail something I should be thinking about? Hmm, that's a good question. I would say it because it, it really caters to all different types of people, whether you're brand new or very experienced. There's a little bit of something for everybody. And the fact that it is so well-maintained and so well-orchestrated I think that really lends itself to any experience level, as long as you know some basic tenets of safety and, and all that and being prepared. But I think that's one of the biggest assets to it is that there's no guessing. You know what you're going to get, aside from just all the natural beauty, which is just a given after you know talking about it so much. But it's just one that's easy to plan and execute, in my opinion. So if you like something more rugged and burly and, and unpredictable, it's probably not the trail for you. But if you like to just go to something that you know what you're going to get and it's going to be just a, a, a good experience from start to finish as far as the trail itself, it's a good one, I think, for a lot of different people. Do you have a particular favorite memory or something in particular you love the most about hiking this trail? Yeah, there's so many with my kids. I mean, we just had countless memories and just seeing the trail through their eyes. And honestly, during the hiking, you know, they would get grumpy and tired and you'd have to just kind of keep just boosting morale constantly, it felt like. But once they got to camp, we were always camped by water. The campsites are always near a reliable water source, usually some type of a stream that's reliable. And they would just immediately get in that water if it was warm enough and just be kids. And it was always so much fun to watch that. And it was like a light switch. They would go from being grumpy and tired to just being completely energetic and happy again. So those were probably my treasures with uh, the kids. And I'd say for the Mother's Day hike, um, I had just come off a search and rescue mission. Someone had fallen from Whitewater Falls from the side of it. They had tried to scale up part of it. And it was a, a death involved, a fatality. And one of the rescuers actually was involved in a, a fatality. He, he lost his life rappelling down it. So it was just a tragic search and mission all around. So it was kind of a healing hike for me. Mother's Day is always a challenge for me anyway because of my own mom's death. But that just the whole walk was kind of meditative for me, just reflecting back on that and 
just trying to heal a little bit from kind of the trauma of, of experiencing all that. But really at the end was the best part because my son, my family met me the last night on trail. They came and camped with me at the Virginia Hawkins waterfall. Uh, there's a campsite right at the base of it. And that's another one of my favorite campsites, by the way, on the trail. But my oldest son, he was 16 at the time. And he said, Mom, for Mother's Day, I want to hike with you on the last day. And I said, well, Aiden, you know, it's 20, I think it was like 21 miles. I said, you know, I know you don't want to hike that long. So don't worry about it. I'm fine. You guys are going to meet me at the end. And We'll go out to eat and celebrate afterwards. And he said, no, no. He said, I'm going to go. He said, I'm capable of doing it, which he was. And he said, I just really want to give that to you because I know you like hiking with us. And I get teary just thinking about it. But I let him go. And we just had the best day. And he didn't complain a bit. He was old enough just to know I need to, to stay in line, even though I'm not loving this like my mom does. And it was just such a joy to spend that day with him. It'll probably forever be one of my favorite days I've ever spent with one of my kids. That's fantastic. You know, what I've learned hiking with my kids as, as they've gotten older, there is no substitute for youth. They can keep up. <laughs> yes, that's the truth. Yes, he didn't complain a bit. Yeah, I thought, gosh, I could never just go out cold like that and hike 20 miles without really hurting. But yeah, he seemed to handle it fine. <laughs> and what about things that you didn't expect that happened on these trips? I know there were a couple in your post about, you know, the trip with the kids. I think one was dealing with the tent on the first night. And then also it sounded like you guys may have forgotten your fuel can or something like that. Yes, the fuel canister debacle. That was a good one. Um, I had bought a new backpack. And so I decided at the last minute that it just wasn't as comfortable as I thought it would be. So I switched back to my old pack. But I forgot to move the fuel canister. I put it in one of those little pockets, you know, that the pack had. And I just forgot. So we get to camp and I'm the one who has the stove and the fuel. My, my best friend was with us with her kids, too. And everybody's starving. You know, they've hiked in all day. And all of a sudden we realized there's no fuel. And we really weren't planning on having a fire that night. There was some rain in the forecast. But my son, who at the time, it was the same son who did the Mother's Day hike with me. He loved making fires. And he'd even gone to a workshop to learn how to build different types of fires, all the different ways to do it. So he said, Mom, I'm on it. So he set all the other kids to work, gathering little twigs and sticks and all the things he needed. And his goal was always to build a one-match fire, to only strike one match and have it light and stay lit. And so he did. And so he was so puffed up. He was proud of himself and all the kids were just in awe that he knew how to do it. And so, yes, we had dinner over an open fire. So it was a little bit different experience, but one that none of us ever forgot. We laughed and laughed about the fuel canister the rest of the trip, just because we knew we were set with Aiden. As long as Aiden was there, we were going to have a quick fire. That's great. You probably feel like at that point you you've successfully raised a kid because you know they can they can survive in the woods and start their own fire. Exactly. That's what I told him. I said I feel confident that if you got loose from me at some point, you you'd be okay. So, and he's always held true to that. He he is definitely a an outdoorsy kid who would survive just fine out there if he got lost. So now that you've done this trip a couple of times, is there anything that uh, you would do differently if you did it again? Anything that sort of either gear wise or, or campsite choice or just anything where you think, you know, if I did it the next time, I'd do it a little bit differently? Yeah, probably the only thing is just to change the direction. I'd like to experience it from Table Rock to Oconee next time. And as far as gear, I feel like I dialed that in pretty well. I can't think of anything that I would really change. I'd probably pick some different campsites. I tended to pick the same ones that I'd already camped at when I did it the second time, just for familiarity purposes, and it worked out with the itinerary. But 
all of them are really unique in their own way. And so there's some other ones that I would love to just spend the night at just to shake it up a little bit and do something different. But um, yeah, that's and maybe do. I think it would be fun to do a winter hike of it just because I know it would be really quiet. And as long as it wasn't a season of ice or at least a, a time frame of a lot of ice, I think it would be a really tranquil experience and, and unique to do it in the winter. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for talking with me about the Foothills Trail. But while I have you, I've got a few more questions for you. Yeah, sure. What is one piece of gear you don't leave home without? Yeah, there's actually a two-part answer. One I've already kind of touched on, which is my umbrella. I absolutely love my umbrella. But the other thing that I just always have in my pack, no matter what, and I wish everybody could afford one, is some type of a satellite locator beacon, like a Garmin inReach or the Rescue Link. Just being on a search and rescue team, I see firsthand all the time how much of a difference it makes if someone does have one as far as our response time and just survivability. If somebody's really in a bind and is not prepared, it can get us there faster. Not always. We're a, most search and rescue teams are all volunteer-based, and so we have to drop everything in our lives to go out and help people. It's never as quick as people expect it or think that it will be. But having that way to communicate to the outside world and send an SOS signal to say, I'm hurt especially or lost, it just gets things moving a lot faster, especially if we can communicate back and forth with someone. I've definitely been thinking about getting one because I tend to do solo trips from time to time. I end up doing solo trips. So I think it would be helpful for me to have one. Uh, and even when I go with my son or my daughter or friends, it's, you know, we get pretty far out there sometimes. And so I've thought about it. I think there is an initial sort of resistance to the price for these things. Um, but I do think you, you make a good point. It's probably worth it. I think they're on, a, are they on a subscription basis? Is that how it works? It is. The, the Garmin is, and there's a new one. I can't remember the name of it. It's a newer company. And that one is a subscription base too. It's a little more expensive even than Garmin. But there is one that people usually aren't as aware of because it just doesn't get talked about as much. It's called the Rescue Link, and it's R-E-S-Q-L-I-N-K, so it's not spelled in the traditional way, but its sole purpose is just to send an SOS signal with your coordinates. It doesn't let you message one way or the other, so that part is the one limitation of it, but it's a one-time fee. You it pay the fee for it. You just purchase it, and it's good for five years. The battery does expire in about five years, and I've heard that you can replace the battery for about 100 bucks. I think the unit itself is... I want to say you can get it on sale for about 250 300 or that may even be full price. But for roughly 50 bucks a year, it's worth that peace of mind and significantly less expensive than some of the ones that you can communicate back and forth. That's certainly an added bonus of those. But I know for a lot of people, just the cost limitation, it adds up pretty quickly with the membership. Okay, well, that's good advice. What's the one hike or trip that you've done besides the Foothills Trail that others shouldn't miss out on? Yeah, I would say if you can get to Great Smoky Mountains National Park, there's so many great routes. And I'm happy to lend my advice to anyone if they wanted to reach out to me through my blog. I could talk to Smokies all day long. So that's something that certainly is always at the top of my list here regionally. But I would say my favorite hike beyond this, and it's probably one that you're more familiar with, is the Tahoe Rim Trail. And I did that a few years ago just as a solo, I call it a mombatical, it's kind of like a sabbatical, but you know, because I just need a break from being a mom, but I love that trail. I w I'd like to do it again and do it in the opposite direction just to have a different experience, but I just treasured every second of it. 
I hiked it in 2009. Okay. And I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It's, it's a fantastic beautiful. trail. Yeah. Which direction did you go? I went clockwise when I did it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I did as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even remember why I chose that direction. I think it was just because of resupplies and all. It was late, late summer, almost at like September-ish. And so I think that some of the places were already closed and it was easier to do it that way. So last question for you. What is the worst weather you've ever experienced while you were outdoors and how did you handle it? Yeah, that probably the the worst was out in Colorado. I did the Four Passes Loop, which is a loop in the Maroon Bells area. And I we deal with lightning here, and I, we certainly help lightning victims or strike victims here with search and rescue. But it's not nearly as big of an issue here as it is out on these in these areas out west where you're above tree line so much. And I was doing this four passes loop again as another one of my little mombatical trips. And I knew to get over, up and over the high passes before noon, and it was in September. So I didn't think that the risk of afternoon thunderstorms was as high and there were none predicted. It was all the things that I thought were working in my favor. And so I was heading up. I thought I'm going to knock out two passes in one day and I was still going to get them done before noon. But it was about 11 o'clock when I was heading up the second one. And all of a sudden over the mountain, this just ominous, dark black cloud comes just roaring in with a storm with it. And I just had no idea it was coming and it just wasn't forecasted. It really caught me off guard and I was above tree line at that point. So I rushed to get below tree line. But the lightning was a little bit too close for my comfort. It was the the lightning and the thunder were almost simultaneous. And yeah, it was it was not a good scene. So live and learn. It was it's something I won't do again. I think I'll make any pass like that well be, or before noon just to be on the safe side. But uh, I just don't have the experience out there that I do here to know how to read weather patterns as well. So it was certainly scary. Yeah, Colorado definitely has that. I, I spent a summer there when I was a kid, and we would basically, you could plan like clockwork for the three o'clock in the afternoon lightning storm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, could, the showers would come in and lightning and thunder. And then I remember we had a point during the, we were camping for an entire summer when I was a kid. In the middle of the summer, it rained for like two weeks straight, which was something bizarre up in the mountains, you know, and it was constant thunder and lightning. Certainly an experience to be up high in the mountains in Colorado and get blasted by a good electric storm. Definitely. Yes. I have a good friend who lives out there and he was actually running the entire loop with his friends that day. And we met for dinner later that night. And I said, well, I just really feel stupid. And, you know, here I am as search and rescue and put myself in a really vulnerable situation. And he said, no, that one was a bad one. He said that we didn't expect it either. They were near a pass too. So it made me feel better that the Colorado people still were a little caught off guard too. But yeah, you have to be so careful out there. Nancy East of Hope and Feather Travels. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate having you here. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thanks again to Nancy East. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And I hope Nancy and I have inspired you to hike the Foothills Trail. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we preview our next episode, I want to remind you about Outdoor Herbivore. Outdoor Herbivore has great vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals. And as I always say, you don't have to be a vegetarian or a vegan to love them. They have quality ingredients, ample portions, and easy boil-in-the-bag packaging so that they're easy to cook on the trail. 
In June, I went on a three-day solo hike in California's Trinity Alps, a mountain range that I love and highly recommend. Plan to do an episode on it eventually. The weather was pretty bad. It rained the whole first night. The wind shook my tent all night, and it was cold and cloudy much of the next day. But I thoroughly enjoyed my outdoor herbivore chickpea sesame zeti. I had a different brand of backpacking meal the first night of the trip, and it was so salty I almost couldn't finish it. But the outdoor herbivore meal really hit the spot the second night. Outdoor herbivore doesn't give me anything to mention them on the show, but I love their products. And of course, they are offering Trails Worth Hiking listeners a 10% discount. To get the discount, go to Outdoor Herbivore and enter the discount code TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%, to get your 10% discount on your order. So there you have it, Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right, next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we go south again, but this time much further south, to Australia, but not to the hot and dusty outback. Instead, we go to a wet, windy, wild, unpredictable frontier even further south, to a land that some think of as the Alaska of the Southern Hemisphere. We'll travel a 40-mile or 65-kilometer route through grassy plateaus, forest, passes, and bogs. We'll stay in rustic backcountry huts or pitch a tent nearby, where you can commiserate with fellow travelers about the weather and poisonous snakes. On this trek, you might even get a glimpse of some of the unique wildlife like the platypus, or better yet, the Tasmanian devil. Yep, we're going to the island of Tasmania. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Overland Track in Cradle Mountain Lake St. Clair National Park in Tasmania, Australia. If you have any ideas or feedback on this episode, or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking.com at gmail.com. And that is it for this episode. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.